the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honour your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in in the smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. to Rochelle. But, uh, I only needed verses 1 to 19 read, but you've done well. But, um, and to make life even more interesting tonight, this is Jess's first effort at flying the console at the back. And she has to try and work out how to read my handwriting 
and figure out where everything fits. So a bit of a challenge for her. I think I was asked to do this particular message because nobody else would. It's a big one. It really is a big one. The God who legislates. Before we come into it, let's bow our heads and start with prayer. Lord our God, indeed, we ask that you watch over us tonight. Keep our minds focused on what you have for us. Keep our hearts soft to your promptings. And Lord, just help us to be your good servants. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In our dealings with people round about us, one of the most commonly raised objections against Christians and Christianity, particularly in Western society, is that we have too many rules. You're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, you have to do this, you have to do that. And if you're one variety of Mennonite, you're a sinner if you're only television. If you're the next variety of Mennonite, you can have a television. And even the Amish, it's amazing how they can get around some of the rules that they have to face. It's one of the most commonly faced objections, particularly in Western society, that we have too many rules. We're accused of being narrow and bigoted. And I suppose as time goes, you meet people like that. And I know there have been occasions when I've met people who are so narrow-minded they could see through a keyhole with both eyes at once. Martin got it. <laughs> We hold certain things to be true and their opposites to be untrue. As Christians, we distinguish between orthodox doctrine and heresy. We do have rules of conduct and of morality. And the non-Christian world looks on this as arrogant and divisive. They don't want to know about it because it just doesn't work if we're going to have a genuinely tolerant society. If we are going to have a genuinely tolerant society, these Christian attitudes are just unacceptable. Let me give an, a couple of examples, actually, of worldly values clashing with Christian values. A week ago, I got an email from Wendy Francis... Uh, who works with the Australian Christian Lobby and whose husband is one of the lecturers at the Baptist College at Mitchelton. And in the email, she tells me that a particular store in most of the big shopping centres around the place is doing a promotion that involves a certain gentleman's magazine. And... She's not happy about it and asking myself and others to sign a petition with regard to it. She says, This porn brand should not be promoted to children and young people in shopping centres by responsible retailers. We must evaluate who benefits from this marketing of that particular brand. Start with a P, end with a Y. This brand has infiltrated mainstream culture with a selection of pink, sparkly merchandise and retro fashions. 
rather than perpetrate the lies about women and their purpose in life, businesses have a corporate responsibility to promote the truth that women and girls have the right to be treated with respect and dignity and live free from discrimination. I might as well use the name. What Playboy offers women and girls are damaging, stereotyped sex roles that promote women's inequality. Please sign this petition and pass it on. Wendy's good at getting under people's skin with issues like that, but she's not appreciated. And one of the things that she's really been working on for a number of years is that outdoor advertising has to be G-rated. And if Jess is really clever, she'll come up with the cartoon that's at the end of this email. That would be slides... Sorry, I was looking back that way. She actually does a good, or well, the fellow who does the cartoon does a good job of rhyming it as well. Ready for the next two? In just another aside, the next slide, which we can't read. Okay. Tell me where you think it comes from. Whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and under the constitution hereby established. Where does that come from? Come on! It is the first full paragraph of the preamble to the Australian Constitution. Those words, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, no prizes for guessing why some people want to change the preamble of our Constitution. The community around us generally views claims to speak the truth as claims to power, as manipulation that engenders constraint and coercion. But all these claims by the non-Christian world to demand freedom, to be free of constraint, to be free of coercion, all these claims against Christianity have their own problems. They demonstrate exclusivity. Quite a number of years ago, I applied for a job in the state government in a particular parliamentary service. And I mentioned my Christian commitment in the application. And I can assure you that if I had been a coloured lesbian Buddhist, preferably with a disability, I would have been a shoe-in. But as a Christian, I was right on the outer. So these claims by the world lead to exclusivity. 
They lead to judgmentalism. Talking to a local member of parliament on one occasion, she used the word fundamentalist, referring to Christians without checking that I might not have been one first. Leads to narrowness and it leads to constraint that there are things that we are not allowed to do. We are not allowed to speak our mind on some issues. A week ago, I received an email indicating that a Catholic chaplain within the armed forces of this country has received virtually a show cause why you should not be dismissed notice from the head of army for comments he's made about homosexuality. A different form of constraint. But they look at Christianity and Christians and say, hey, you can't do that. Today, people are likely to believe that notions of morality and truth are socially constructed and that no social construct has any legitimate claim to be superior to any other socially constructed perspective. And let me tell you, if you believe that, then you believe that view is socially constructed and cannot legitimately claim any superiority. So we just keep going in endless circles. At the end of the day, we cannot escape the notion of truth. Or for some of you, you might think of it as the real truth. The freedom that people crave cannot be endlessly open-ended. We need to bear this background in mind as we approach the Bible and discover that God does indeed legislate. Our God lays down laws and if we cannot escape Western popular thinking, we may find that offensive as we look at the Bible's storyline we discover that God's law is actually bound up with the joyous freedom of life lived under the God who made us and that's something to remember what we're doing in these evening services is an overview of biblical history and picking up on some particular themes along the way. And last week we finished with the patriarchs and the particular covenant that God established with them in chapter 15 of Genesis. After that, their descendants hung around as nomads in Canaan, later known as Israel, till times got pretty tough with drought and they moved in one solid block down to Egypt. Initially they were well received in Egypt but it wasn't long before they were seen as a security threat by the regime. They continued to flourish under conditions of captivity and slavery. In due course God raises Moses he was a Hebrew, but through some very strange circumstances, was raised in the Egyptian royal court. As a young man, he thought that he would side with the oppressed ethnic minority from which he came 
and ended up killing an Egyptian, then having to flee for his life. At 80 years of age, after spending most of his life working as a shepherd on the backside of the desert, and it really was the back end of the desert, he heard the voice of God telling him to go back and lead the people out of slavery and out of Egypt. In Exodus 3, Moses gives all his reasons for believing that he is unsuitable for the role. He's too old. His ability as a public speaker is not good. Look, somebody else just has to be far more suitable than me. And he's still a wanted man in Egypt. Finally, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Exodus 3.13. And eventually, you would all know, after 10 plagues, the Israelites are sent on their way. Almost rejoicing. They cross the Red Sea and end up at a mountain in the desert called Sinai where God constructs another covenant. In Exodus, God specifies forms of religion, how the nation is to organise itself, who the priests are, and so on. But most importantly, it reveals more of God. And so we come to Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. These commandments are right at the heart of this covenant. The Ten Commandments are often divided into two parts. The first four have to do with people's relationship with God. The second six have to do with our relationships with each other. And we move on to the next slide. Thanks, Jess. What I want to do is run through some of those commandments quickly because our understanding of them is important. Commandment one tells us about God's exclusiveness. It directs us to recognize the exclusiveness of God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the context in which it's given, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now up to this point in the Bible storyline, God is, is, is shown and referred to as creator the one who has made everybody and everything. As the creator, he is the God to whom we give an account, the God on whom we are dependent, the God who gives us life and breath and health and strength and everything else. That's true for all human beings. Here, however, the focus is on what God has done 
for one specific group of human beings, the descendants of Abraham. God has brought them out of slavery. In the wake of this liberation, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Doesn't seem unreasonable at all, does it? Two chapters farther on, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. A chapter after that, do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Eleven chapters later, do not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous god. That's 34 verse 14. Or again, I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45 verse 5. Surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Isaiah 45 14. You know, if they'd started to wander off, you'd expect God to be a bit upset, wouldn't you? A jealous God. He wants them for himself, to stay with himself. If they want to move off into, a, into idolatry, what's God supposed to say? Oh, look, just make up your spirituality as you go along. Invent your own God. I don't really care. Surely we wouldn't expect that. But, you know, that's the sort of religion that people desire today. We'll just make it up to suit ourselves. That sort of response from God, I don't really care, would deny who he is. It denies his role as creator. It denies his exclusive function as the sovereign sustainer of all life. In the passage before us, he is the God who rescued his covenant people from slavery. Shall he now say, but you can pretend that some other power saved you, if you like? You can make your own gods go right ahead. He is the Lord whose name is Jealous. The truth of the matter is that this is also for their good. If he were to say, you can do what you want, they would simply slide into endless self-justification, self-love, Self-focus, sound like our world today. They would become indistinguishable from the pagans all around them. Pretty soon, they would be offering their children to Molech. The neighbours are doing it, why shouldn't we? This God-centeredness that God insists upon is for their good. It is in fact an act of love, of great generosity, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments tells us that we have to recognize the exclusiveness of God. The second commandment looks at God's transcendence. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. The prohibition preserves the distinction between creator and created thing. As soon as you start saying, God looks like this, 
whether it's a fish or a mountain or a human being, somehow God gets reduced. He becomes something that we can encapsulate, domesticate, and in some measure, control. But we saw that from the beginning, that is not the way God wants us to understand him. There is but one creator. He is to be distinguished from all of the created order. God must not be domesticated. The third commandment tells us of God's importance. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, I'm sure OMG doesn't have God in it, does it? I don't know. Might be gosh. But, uh, we hear the name of our Lord Jesus. We hear the name of God. We hear the title of Jesus, the Christ, as a swear word all around the place. And if we were to challenge somebody using it, they'd probably say, oh, look, it, it means nothing. It means nothing. Using the name of God or of Jesus when you mean nothing by it is not profane because you've spoken a magic word that you are not really allowed to use as if the priests are the only ones who can do it the correct way. The usage is profane because it is common, because it is cheap. We are dealing with God and we must say and do nothing that diminishes him or cheapens him. It is at best disrespectful, ungrateful and demeaning. At worst, it de-gods him and thus sinks again to the level of idolatry. The fourth commandment tells us of God's right of reign, including over our use of time. It calls us to recognise God's right to rule over every domain of life. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, and so on. This pattern was established in, create, in creation. God did his creative work in the six days of creation week and then stopped on the seventh day. And that pattern here establishes a cycle of time in the human order. There is a place for rest. The primary motive is not only to live to the pattern that God has established, but to preserve a day devoted to the Lord our God. We could work through the rest of the Ten Commandments, but that's probably why others were scared off this one. It really is a big thing to look at each one. But just a few observations. Chapter 20 of Exodus begins, God spoke all these words. 
he's being presented as a talking god not only with the kind of speech that calls the universe into existence with the kind of speech that interacts with his image bearers in genesis 3 and writes a covenant with them in genesis 15 but with the kind of speech that commands them later on we are told these are the commandments the lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire the cloud and the deep darkness and he added nothing more deuteronomy 5:22 god spoke secondly these 10 commandments have a central place in the old covenant they are cited by later prophets hosea and jeremiah they're quoted in the psalms and sometimes referred to in the new testament the first four commandments lead to the next six because god is who he is because he is to be honored and revered therefore we are to behave in a certain way among ourselves above all the ten commandments are related to god's self-disclosure in a gracious redemptive act the liberation of his people from slavery he is the god who called the people out of slavery and then he says and therefore you shall act this way for the most part the ten commandments do not so much introduce new standards of behavior as codify the relationship that god's covenant people are supposed to have with him it wasn't okay to murder people before the ten commandments it wasn't okay to steal it wasn't okay to lie before the ten commandments the commandments formalize some of what is required and what is forbidden for exactly this reason the laws of god do not and least of all the ten commandments do not have the power to transform us they do not have the power to liberate us from our addiction to sin they lay out the standards and thus in a sense they underscore our failures and faults they expose our bad behavior for what it is and make it more than idolatrous self-centeredness it is now also transgression of specific commands but now in addition to the betrayal and broken relationships intrinsic to the things in those six areas they are now also a breach of specific command before we leave the ten commandments i'd i'd love to introduce you to the hillbilly version and the person here who does the best hillbilly accent because he practiced it real hard for kids club is brendan sorry we don't have a spare microphone for you but you'll manage Here we are. All right. Bruce has sprung these on me, and I will spring them on you. <laughs> the Hillbilly Ten Commandments. 
Sorry. <clears throat> the hillbilly Ten Commandments ain't but one God. Honor your ma and pa. No telling tales or gossiping. Get your hide to Sunday meeting. Ain't nothing come before the Lord. No fooling around with another fella's gal. No killing except for critters. Quit your foul mouthing. No swapping your kinfolk stuff and don't be hankering for it neither. Well done. You better keep that one too. I'm sure Brendan's working out how he can use that as a youth group talk now. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> as well as legislating for life in general, God also legislates in the area of worship. In Leviticus 16, he talks about the most holy place. God sets up an entire structure for ritual. God ordains that a tabernacle, a big tent, a kind of predecessor to the temple, be built. And it's to be built a certain way. He provides the exact dimensions and the design and the people go ahead and build it. The first room, the larger one, is called the holy place. The second room, hidden from the first by a veil or curtain, is called the most holy place. And outside the tent is a place for sacrificing animals. Inside this tent, this tabernacle, is a variety of items of furniture, a lampstand, a place where bread is set out week by week, and other matters that we don't really need to go into at this point. Outside the tabernacle are various courtyards where people gather. In many ways, the basic layout is simple. Not exactly the kind of cathedral you'd find in Rome or Canterbury. Not some massive structure. It is, after all, a finely designed tent. Inside the most holy place is a box. It's called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Agreement. And it holds certain things, including a copy of the Ten Commandments. And something special takes place with the Ark once a year. God ordains a special class of people to carry out this activity, namely some priests. All of these priests are drawn from one of the tribes of the ancient Hebrews called the Levites. The high priest must be a Levite who descends from one particular line, the line of Aaron, who is Moses' brother. Once a year, the high priest is supposed to take the blood of a slaughtered goat and a slaughtered bull take it behind the veil to the most holy place and sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That happens on the day that's called the Day of Atonement. Meanwhile, outside the tabernacle, another goat that's been taken out into the desert to wander away. Given our largely secular world, some of us cannot help but think, what sort of religion is this with its bloody animals and wandering goats? These two are parts of what God ordains in his law. 
And in this case, the description is found in the third book of the Bible, in Leviticus. Leviticus is a book that describes many of the priestly sacrifices and what they signify. But here, we just look at this one ritual. The entire ritual is around removing sin. On the head of one goat, the one that is not to be killed, the priest puts his hand. This is a way of signifying that the sins of the priest himself, of his family and of the entire people are being transferred, as it were, to this goat that then symbolically takes the sin away. The animal is released into the desert never to return. The other two animals, a ram and a bull, are slaughtered. Their blood is captured in a pan, taken into the most holy place behind the veil and sprinkled on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is a way of saying that something has died. Someone has paid the price of death for the sins of the priest and his family, for the sins of the people. It was to happen once a year, every year, on that Day of Atonement. That's the only time that the high priest is allowed to enter the most holy place. God was displaying himself as a God who holds his people to account. He has already sent Adam and Eve away from his presence. How do you get back into the presence of this God? How can you be reconciled to this God? What you discover is that all these sacrifices are mandated under this law covenant, under this covenant of Moses, to indicate that death is still going to prevail apart from sacrifice because there is still so much sin even among the covenant people. Abraham was a sinner. Isaac and Jacob were sinners. The patriarchs were sinners. And now the people of God, this covenant community, this people with whom God establishes his covenant, are terrible sinners too. Brings us to another passage in this collection of books. Exodus 32 and 34. Moses and Joshua coming down with the tablets from the mountain. They discover that while Moses was away for a period of time, this people who'd been saved from slavery, who'd been repeatedly exposed to God's gracious self-disclosure, this people who were on the edge of moving into a promised land and being established as a nation, this people somehow reduced God, who had brought all this liberation about, to an image of a calf. Can't we have a God that we can look at and touch like our neighbours all around us? Aaron was worried, wasn't sure what to do. Well, give me your gold earrings and gold bracelets and we'll see what we can do. Eventually he produces a lovely little gold calf, the kind of image that was known in idle circles in Egypt. The people are having a wild party around this God, a kind of pagan worship that becomes more and more enthusiastic. It is indeed the sound of singing that Moses hears as he comes down the mountain, but not singing to worship the God who is there, but singing to a domesticated God that can be touched and kissed and fawned over. 
God threatens to wipe out the entire nation and start over again, perhaps with Moses. But Moses pleads for the people. These people had God's... They had a wonderful experience of God. And what we need to understand is that even though... Even though... This is wonderful. We can lose it. What any people must have is the presence of the living God. It's not enough in any church simply to have the right rituals, to have the right sermons, to have the right kind of music. Don't ask me what that is. If God does not manifest himself in some way, if he is not present then what's the point of the whole exercise? Is religion merely some sort of structured ritual heritage or is it bound up with being reconciled to the God who made us, who holds us to account? If your presence does not go with us, what is the point in the exercise is Moses' question. There is no point in merely being different because we have rules. We must have God. Throughout all this, God is saying, this is who I am. This is the God who is there. I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the YHWH, which some will call Yahweh. And recently I've, been, I've heard people using the word Yahweh in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. How do you deal with a God with whom you cannot barter, who has no needs? It must be a work of sovereign grace. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There is a profound paradox in God's self-description in Exodus and in this legislation of law. On the one hand, he is compassionate and gracious. If he had not been compassionate and gracious, the human race would have ended at the end of Genesis 3. There would have been only judgment. Death was the promise and instead God was forbearing. He abounds in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. On the other hand, he is also the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. The closest you get to resolving this tension in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant, is in the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest places his hands on the head of that goat and sends it off to symbolize sin being removed, taken away. The animals died in the place of the people. Will this do? Is it what you have commanded? Will this do? Will you not have mercy on us in our sin, in our rebellion and defection? What the law has provided is a vehicle, a sacrificial structure in which God has disclosed himself as the one who pursues 
his own people. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, another book is written, a book in the New Testament that we call Hebrews. The writer of that book in chapters 9 and 10 invites his readers to look back on the old sacrificial system and say, Do you not understand? That sacrifice of a bull and a goat cannot ever deal finally with sin. How can it deal finally with sin when the priests have to offer the same sacrifices again and again, year after year? How can the blood of a bull and a goat pay for sin in any case? In what sense does the bull offer a sacrifice? Does the bull come up and say, All right, I'll die for you. Slit my throat. Where is the moral value in this sacrifice? But the day of atonement, once held every year in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant, has been superseded because we have the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus himself, who shed his blood on our behalf, a perfect moral sacrifice. He offers up his life, takes our death, bears our sin away in a fashion that no animal ever could. The law pointed forward to that sole means of God reconciling rebels to himself and brings together in Jesus the poles of Exodus 34. God abounds in love and faithfulness and he forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. Not because he leaves the guilty unpunished, but because another bears their punishment. God legislates for our benefit. God legislates to give us a framework in which to glorify him. God legislates to reveal himself, to reveal his character. And he legislates that his purposes might be demonstrated here is the God who legislates and even in his legislation he points us to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Lord our God, we thank you that you have spoken and that you continue to speak that you are indeed our Lord and our God. Help us to accept what it is that you have given us and to use it all to your glory. Help us to proclaim you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.